Welcome to the KPMG Financial Reporting Podcast Series, delivering fresh insights and perspectives around major accounting and financial reporting developments across a range of timely topics. We thank you for joining today. Hello, I'm Karen Silverman, a partner at KPMG. And in this episode, I'm visiting with several of my fellow partners in the firm's Department of Professional Practice, who monitor trends and developments at the SEC. Joining me today are Timothy Brown, Aaron McCloskey, and Rob Worling. KPMG recently hosted a webcast on this topic, so today we plan to recap some of that content, as well as cover some more detail and touch on some of the frequently asked questions we received during the webcast. KPMG has also published a number of resources on these various topics, each of which are available on the website at frv.kpmg.us in the SEC Matters section. So one topic that I know has continued to receive a lot of interest is the SEC's focus on materiality and restatements, which they conveyed in remarks at the AICPA conference and in other forums. We discussed this on the webcast, but I think we received a few questions, primarily regarding better understanding what's referred to as a little r and a big r restatement. Rob, can you share any perspective on those and maybe help clarify the distinctions between the two? Sure, I'd be happy to, Karen. Uh, But maybe before we get into the differences between correcting an error as a big r versus a little r, maybe I'll set the stage just a bit and clarify a few of the remarks that I made on the webcast. We really need to start with the importance of determining the materiality of the error itself. As we discussed on the webcast, the SEC staff made some recent comments that were a a very important reminder that that evaluation requires an unbiased and objective application of the guidance. So we need to consider both the quantitative and qualitative factors related to the error. As outlined in Staff Accounting Bulletin Number 99, or SAB 99 as we often refer to it, those qualitative factors should always be carefully analyzed because in some cases they might cause what would otherwise be a quantitatively small error to actually be considered material. But it's equally important when we're evaluating an error that is quantitatively significant because in certain cases, the qualitative factors might support a determination that the error is immaterial to the historical periods. On the webcast, I think I used the term rare in describing that situation, which wasn't my intent. However, it is very important to be cautious anytime that we initially conclude that qualitative factors can overcome the magnitude of an error and thereby support for its correction uh, using the little r form of restatement. Magnitude often can't be overcome by those qualitative factors, as was highlighted by some of the examples that I discussed on the webcast where the SEC objected to a little r restatement for an error correction. Great, thanks Rob. I know that can be an important judgment I think we also had a question or two about how little R restatements are apparent in the financial statements. In other words, how would someone reading the financial statements know that there has been a little R? Can you share an overview or a reminder on that? Sure. I think it's first important to acknowledge that both big R's and little R's are restatements. They're just different forms of presentation. A big R restatement involves the reissuance of the prior period financial statements with the error corrected and clearly labeled as being restated separately and before the financial statements for the current period are issued. 
This is necessary when it's been determined that the error was material to those historical periods, and therefore those financial statements can no longer be relied upon. In contrast, in a little r form of restatement, the error is corrected by revising the historical periods presented at the time the next set of financial statements are issued for the current period. I'll add that it's expected that the correction of the error, which has been determined to be immaterial to those historical periods, is disclosed in a note to the financial statements that describes the nature and the specific impacts of the error on those historical periods presented. So again, both forms of presentation represent a restatement uh, that are made clear to a user of the financial statements, albeit using a different uh, level of prominence of presentation. Thanks, Rob. That's a helpful clarification. So on to a different topic, ESG continues to get widespread attention, uh, particularly from the SEC. On the webcast, you discussed the Dear Issuer letter that the SEC issued back in September of 2021, asking companies about their climate-related disclosures. We received questions from our webcast participants asking for an update on the letter and for some perspective on what we are seeing in response to those comment letters. Erin, what can you tell us on this? Yes, Karen, this is certainly a question we have received somewhat frequently in the months since the issuance of that sample comment letter, as well as the SEC issuing actual letters to companies. For those who may not have been able to join us on the webcast, this Dear Issuer letter is a sample comment letter that the SEC, that the SEC issued, and it provides an illustrated list of comments that the SEC staff may pose to companies about their climate-related disclosures, or in some cases, the absence of those disclosures. Um, now, we are aware of many companies receiving this letter, but as of last night, when I checked the SEC's Edgar website one last time before our chat today, um, I did not see any of these comment letters or company responses to letters mirroring that sample letter. But these letters and the responses will become public uh, once all the questions have been resolved and the review is completed. And then that correspondence is not posted to the SEC's website until about 20 days after the review has been completed. So since we haven't seen any posted yet, that likely means that there continues to be correspondence between the SEC staff and companies, whether that's through additional round of comment letters or possibly through conversations, uh, or potentially we are in that 20-day window waiting for the comments to post. But what I can share is what we are seeing and hearing in the meantime. Now, we do know that companies that received these letters back in the fall uh, have responded to that initial comment letter asking about their climate disclosures. And to provide some insights for those who may not have read that sample letter yet, the comments would ask, for example, uh, for the company to revise their disclosure to identify any material past and or future capital expenditures for climate-related projects or another example, the comment asked for the company to discuss the physical effects of climate change on its operations and results, if material. So using these example comments, where companies responded that they had no material capital expenditures in the past or planned for the future on their climate projects, or similarly, they had no 
they had not had any material physical effects of climate change to their operations, the SEC has then issued additional comments asking for the company's analysis to support their statements and also to include any quantitative information in their response. So in which case, companies are now providing responses to those follow-on comments or possibly even waiting to hear back from the SEC on their uh, additional responses. So, um, you know, companies, whether or not they have received a comment letter on their climate disclosures, should review that sample, uh, that sample letter, the Dear Issuer letter, uh, take stock of their existing disclosures, and also consider whether any of those disclosures uh, should be modified to reflect the focus areas. And again, that analysis should consider both quantitative and qualitative information so that the company is prepared in the event it does receive a comment letter from the SEC. Thanks, Erin. Those are some helpful observations and takeaways for companies to consider uh, during this year-end reporting season. If our listeners wanted to find more information about this Dear Issuer letter, where could they find that? Yeah, more information and a link to that sample letter can be found on the ESG reporting page or the SEC page of KPMG's Financial Reporting View website. Okay, great. And then before I let you go, any update on rulemaking on climate disclosures since the webcast? Unfortunately, no. Uh, Our understanding is that the SEC is still expected to propose rules on climate disclosures in this first quarter of 2022. Um, We are continuing to closely monitor the SEC's efforts in this area, and I will say more broadly, ESG matters because there's several things on the agenda. Um, And so we will certainly be providing any updates along the way to keep everyone informed. Okay, great. We'll stay tuned on that. Uh, Moving on to some of the questions on Staff Accounting Bulletin 120, or SAB 120, which is related to so-called spring-loaded share-based awards. We received questions on this about when this topic is effective, certain situations it might apply to, and whether we believe specialists might need to be involved. Tim, would you mind providing our audience with some further insights here? Absolutely, Karen. Thanks. And those are all really good questions, as I think we'd all expect from our audience, right? So SAB 120 was effective on December 1st of 2021, and this is something that registrants should be uh, keeping or keying in on really quickly here. So in terms of when to apply the concepts of 120, that's probably a much more difficult question to answer. The guidance itself is written broadly. So facts and circumstance are going to dictate when this needs to be applied. First, it's really important for entities to consider what changes to processes need to happen and possibly whether new controls need to be implemented in response to the concepts and guidance in the SAB topic itself. This might include considerations of how an organization identifies these circumstances up through the oversight and the governance structure and the considerations at the board level. Without getting back into the rules in depth, issuers need to be concerned about cases where awards are being granted and the company possesses material and non-public information. So the examples provided by the staff in the bulletin include knowledge of a large transaction that's not yet been announced, known earnings that exceed what has been previously communicated, or really any other information that an investor would consider material and that would significantly increase the share price of the company. So to one of the questions, it could be that during a blackout period, awards are granted, 
And the company knows of a material earning beat that will certainly have a positive impact in the market. The company is going to need to think through the guidance here to determine if it applies. That's certainly not always going to be the case, though. So registrants are going to need to be thinking about this as they go. Uh, and it's really even more reason for the need for processes and controls to be relooked at and potentially put in place where there's any deficiencies identified. So the SAB also speaks to valuation considerations when estimating the impact. This could mean modifying assumptions such as volatility, the expected term, or the current price of the underlying share. So just to respond to one more question, while this may require evaluation to be performed, nowhere in the SAB topic does the release actually require evaluation specialists to be engaged. Remember, however, that this will need to withstand scrutiny in an audit or review as well. So companies are going to need to determine how the ultimate value is determined and whether that's appropriate. Great. Thanks, Tim. That's really interesting and certainly a lot for folks to think about. Maybe one last quick question before we close out. We know the SEC has an aggressive agenda set for this year. What's the latest you've heard? And can I possibly persuade you to come back and share more with us soon? <laughs> Thanks, Karen. They do have a very aggressive agenda. So most recently, the commission reopened the comment period on the pay versus performance rulemaking that was originally released in 2015. And I strongly encourage everyone to take a read. This one's only 29 pages. It's not the 650-page monstrosity that some of the other uh, proposed rulemakings are. Um, and certainly comment if you have views. Uh, the staff considers everyone's comments and really welcomes that input. We are currently determining whether we plan to respond as a firm as well. So, and to your last point, of course, I think Aaron, Rob, and I would all be happy to come back throughout this year and share more as we see various rules pushed out by, by this commission and their really aggressive agenda. That's wonderful. Tim, Aaron, and Rob, I really appreciate you taking the time to go through these topics today, and I'm glad we were able to cover some of the follow-up questions from the webcast. I also appreciate your willingness to join future episodes, so I'll look forward to chatting with you again soon. Thank you for listening to this KPMG Financial Reporting Podcast. For more in-depth financial reporting developments, analysis, and podcast episodes, please visit frv.kpmg.us and be sure to subscribe today. Also, we are social. You can also follow us on LinkedIn at KPMG Financial Reporting View or with hashtag KPMG FRV.